Hi everyone, thanks for tuning in to another episode of Wiser. I'm Laura Schwieger, current M4 and Wiser president. Today I'm joined by co-hosts Shannon Sue and Megan Wasson. Hi, I'm Shannon Sue. I'm a current third year medical student at Emory and VP of Wiser. Hi, I'm Megan Watson. I'm also a third year at Emory and I'm the event coordinator for Wiser. And today we are honored to have Dr. Ramirez Caban with us on this podcast. She's an esteemed faculty member in the obstetrics and gynecology department at Emory University Hospital who specializes in minimally invasive gynecologic surgery, also known as MIGS. Dr. Ramirez got her undergraduate degree from Drexel and her medical degree from Temple University School of Medicine. She then came to Emory for residency and completed her MIGS fellowship at the Cleveland Clinic. And after working for a year in private practice in Florida, she returned back here to Emory in academic medicine, where she now teaches minimally invasive surgical techniques to the next generation of surgeons. Welcome, Dr. Ramirez, and thank you so much for being here. My gosh, that was such a nice intro. Thank you so much. I'm very happy to be here. Thanks. I'm very honored that you guys picked me or wanted to chat with me. So hopefully we can we can learn some tips for the for the next generation of surgeons, right? Yeah, of course. <laughs> to start things off, would you like to please tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, for sure. So I am I'm now uh, I've been at Emory now for about a year and I've had plenty of time to get my feet wet. We've had the opportunity to actually start a minimally invasive surgery fellowship. So we have all levels of learner now from medical student, resident, all the way up to the fellow level, which is really fabulous and really nice to be able to kind of teach everyone at their certain skill set and, and be able to have that gratitude of seeing everyone develop their skills. I have a very busy surgical practice. I see a lot of patients in Atlanta from all walks of life, all different types of background, culturally, socially, um, anything. One of the things that we pride ourselves in our department is that we really want to see a lot of diverse patient population. So we see people from every type of background, but also people wanting every kind of surgery. So just because you have fibroids or just because you have endometriosis doesn't necessarily mean that you need to have a hysterectomy, which is typically a default. We can talk a little bit about minimally invasive as it goes, but we like to talk about different options for those patients and not just offer one kind of surgery. Personally, I am a wife. I have a wonderful husband who is extremely supportive I have a nine-month-old baby, so I'm also the navigating waters of a, a new mom, which is always fun as a young physician, a young mom, a young surgeon. So I can definitely answer questions about that or take anyone's advice for that matter. And I have a dog named Chico who's 70 pounds and he's an Aussie doodle. So he's pretty cool too. So I, I keep myself pretty busy. <laughs> Amazing. Thank you so much for sharing all of that. There's so much there that I think we're definitely going to want to dive deeper into. We're all just kind of wondering what your path looked like and how you started your path into surgery and then more specifically into obstetrics and gynecology. Yeah. So I will tell you when I was a med student, if you had asked me my first year, I thought I was going to be a geriatrician like old people doctor. Uh, for you guys that know me and have worked with me, you know that I definitely have entirely way too much energy for our elder population. So that quickly became a no when I did some shadowing opportunities. So then I thought I would do something procedural. I always liked the idea of doing procedure. So I was actually open to internal medicine and maybe GI or palm or something like that. Um, but my first rotation was actually surgery, general surgery. 
And I loved being in the OR, just having the thrill of going in, the environment. It was very straightforward, in my opinion. And now as a surgeon, straightforward is not the word I would use. But, you know, you had a plan, you went in, you fixed it, the patient either goes home or the patient stays overnight. So you had a goal, you had an outcome and you met it. And it was really satisfying from that realm. What I found, though, was that the specific types of surgeries we were doing weren't particularly interesting to me. So then I kind of kept it on the back burner and I thought, you know, I really like general surgery, but I'm not sure that it's for me personally. So then I had the opportunity to do my OBGYN rotation. And I'll tell you, I did not think I was going to like OBGYN, not one bit. And here I go my first day, I'm already like in a twin delivery. And I was like, whoa, that was amazing. And then I had the opportunity to be in the OR, which I love. And then I saw what they could do and I could see their surgeries. And I was like, holy moly, wowza this is what I want to do. I really enjoyed the variety of the cases. I really enjoyed that not every hysterectomy is exactly the same. The anatomy is really varies between patient to patient, depending on their pathology, ovarian cysts or fibroids. So it really drew me to that. So then I decided to pursue a career in obstetrics and gynecology. And I was lucky enough to match at Emory. And then during my residency training, I really still navigated towards the OR. So a lot of times you'll find this in obstetrics and gynecology that OBGYNs will navigate towards one field or the other. There are the rare exception that really like 50-50 for both, but usually you navigate towards one. So I navigated towards the GYN. And for a time, I thought I was going to be a GYN oncologist just because I didn't even know the world of MIGS existed. But I, again, didn't really love the medicine that went along with GYN oncology, which is a lot, chemo drugs, taking care of really complex, medically complex patients. So I had the opportunity to meet Marie Shockley, who's actually still faculty here. And she had come on as new staff and she was MIGS. And I saw her operate and I was like, well, you're doing these insane cases through minimally invasive approach. What? And pretty much any other provider or like other people were doing big open cases for these patients. They had long recoveries. They had long hospital stays. They had a whole bunch of complications from their huge surgeries. So I felt really dissatisfied as a resident. I was like, what are we doing for these patients? These poor women need to get back to their lives. And then I found mix and I was like, oh, this is it. This is what I have to do. So that's what we're doing. And the goal is to get women back on their feet quickly with the least invasive, least risk approach. And that's what we're here to do. Yeah, especially just seeing the patients that you've seen. I remember this one lady who was four weeks post-op, you took a giant cyst out and she was like, yeah, I feel great. Girl, what do you want me to say? I feel amazing. I think it's it's very interesting and honestly, maybe a little serendipitous that you got to find minimally invasive gynecologic surgery and just some background information for our listeners it's a relatively new subspecialty right the first fellowship program for MIGS was formally established in 2001 which in the world of medicine and as I'm sure you know the technology and the surgical techniques that are used in this space have exponentially grown since then so you know what most excites you about this field what do you think the future of MIGS is looking like to you Ooh, what a great question and you <laughs> ask this and it's such a controversial topic it's a way to hit it like the nail on the head boom so you are, like putting me on blast right now a little bit so here we go here's my opinion I usually plead the fifth on this one but I guess I'll give my opinion I think in the way that in the way that the world is working right in the way that medicine is going it's becoming very specialized so that being said, so is obstetrics and gynecology. It used to be in like an all-encompassing field. 
our knowledge base is growing, our skill sets are growing, our surgical modalities are growing and changing. It is impossible to expect one person to have all that knowledge and all that expertise, almost unfair for us as doctors, right? Like it's not even fair for us as trainees to be like, yeah, I can be the end all be all for everything. That's just not even fair as a human. So I envision the field splitting. I envision that you'll have your general gynecologist that can do some simple procedures, simple surgeries, simple obstetrics. Then you have your high-risk obstetrics where you're going to deviate one way. You have your all your surgical subspecialties. And then you have your minimally invasive surgeons that will be doing a lot more of the complex gynecological surgical procedures. So we have different kinds of modalities. We have laparoscopic, we have robotics, we have a new kind of approach called V-notes, which is vaginal orifice surgery. So basically it's like laparoscopic surgery through the vagina. It's really crazy, but it's really becoming popular as a way of having incision-less laparoscopy, right? So you do the lapar laparoscopy vaginally and the patients don't have any incisions on their belly. So there's a whole bunch of different approach to this. I think in the future, we're going to definitely see a split off and we're going to definitely have a lot more minimally invasive surgeons infiltrating our academic centers, our private practices, and we'll see a whole lot more of us in the future. There's the other school of thought, the controversial thought, which is absolutely not. Minimally invasive surgeons will never take over. The general gynecologist will be able to do all. The case, especially as training surgical numbers have decreased nationwide because of our improvements in medications, specifically Mirena IUD, different kinds of other medications we use to control heavy bleeding. So we're seeing less surgery overall, which may be, a, may be a good thing for our women, right? Not everybody needs a hysterectomy, but for surgical training, it has really diminished the, the, the numbers and the abilities for, for residents to come out of training really well-prepared. So makes is the answer. That's so interesting to hear and to learn more about. Yeah. I'm very excited as, as someone potentially interested in a future in OB-GYN. Yeah. Sounds like mix is a big thing on the horizon. It's a big thing. It's a big thing. There's a lot that can be said. You know, robotics is very controversial too. When robotics first came out, is a very controversial surgical technique. Pretty much every surgical subspecialty utilizes the robot, right? It's, I think, a wonderful adjunct. I use the robot a lot in my practice. Make surgeons, some of them use it, some of them don't. I think it just really depends on the practice and where you are training. I've had the, the experience of being in private practice. And what I would say, one of the biggest things that I've learned was being in private practice, we know that right now there's a huge shortage of healthcare workers, physicians, nurses, support staff. So really we're looking to the millennial generation and the Gen Z, Gen X to come in and take over and really be in charge of how do we handle this whole big population of patients that are coming our way. All the boomer generation, we're thinking they'll be retired by 2030. So we're going to lose more doctors by then. I say all that to say we need help. So what's the answer to that specifically in surgery? Well, in my opinion, I think it's the robot. So especially in these community hospitals, 80% of America is treated by community hospitals. You don't have the surgical assistance that you need. You don't have residents that can help you. A lot of times you can't operate with your partners because your partners have to go to clinic or have to cover call or have to cover other places. So everything is running thin. So the robot, the Da Vinci robot, really allows you to be both the surgeon and the assistant because you work with four arms instead of two. You are able to function and able to operate using the four arms. So I do think that for anyone that's really thinking surgically, you should really look at becoming robotic certified, especially if you're thinking of leaving academics and becoming private practice. 
can be a huge asset to you. And it could be a huge way of, of kind of the comeback to not having enough personnel to assist you in surgery. Are you looking at certain procedures now in OB-GYN that are not laparoscopic or robotic at the moment that will be? Because I know in breast surgery, they're trying mm-hmm. to do robotic mastectomies now. So I'm curious if you see anything in OB-GYN going into that direction. Yeah. So we do a fair amount of our procedures already robotically. I think one of the ones that's really coming up is in OB-GYN specifically, cerclages. So cerclages are the the sutures that we place around the cervix when women are at risk or have a history of preterm labor. So one of the ways that we used to do this was vaginally. So we would place vaginal cerclages, but sometimes these fail. So then the abdominal cerclage is a procedure that we do that really is extremely good at keeping women pregnant when they have a history of incompetent cervix or preterm labor. But this procedure typically requires an open incision. So either like a fan and steel incision, you have open surgery. So now a lot of providers are looking to thinking, huh, could we do this laparoscopically? Could we do this robotic? So that's one of the procedures that I think is going to no longer be abdominal and going to convert over to robotic. Mm -hmm. That's a good question. Yeah, that's very cool. Do you think you could speak a little bit more about how you first discovered MIGS, what what drew you to it, and any advice for women or people in general going into OBGYN and MIGS and how we can explore the field more as learners. So this gets into my own personal mission of like, why MIGS, right? Like, why did I choose a special team? So I'll give you a a small story. As a resident, right? I was at Grady and this, I kind of alluded to this a little bit earlier, but I was a resident at Grady and a lot of the patients at Grady, as you guys know, are patients that really require they require a lot. They have awful pathology many times because they have just either been neglected by the healthcare system or haven't had access or haven't had the opportunity to obtain access because of the limitations in their life, social determinants of health. So in our Grady patients, many times they would have large fibroid uteri. So a little background, right? Fibroids afflict about 70 to 80% of the women of the world. And only about uh, 10 to 15% are having heavy bleeding and specific symptoms related to it. We see larger and more fibroids in our Black or African-American populations compared to our white populations. So in Atlanta, we have a very large, predominantly, you know, very large population of Black or African-American patients, large fibroids are here. So these women would come to see us. They would say, I have heavy bleeding. I have fibroids. I need help. But because of the sheer size and the sheer number of them, many times they ended up with big X labs from their pubic symphysis up to their umbilicus, maybe even above. These surgeries take forever for you to heal from. It takes like six weeks to eight weeks. These women have children. These women need jobs. If they don't work, they end up having no way to pay their bills. They end up becoming homeless. So a lot of the things that I kept feeling as a resident was we need to help these women but we can't do this to them. We're going to ruin their lives. You know, like, what are we doing here? So that was the sheer urgency. That was the urgency that I had that I could not compute in my brain. There's nothing better. And then when I saw Marie Shockley operating, I was something like went off in my mind and I was like, hold on, we can do, we can provide this service to all these women, basically get them back on their feet within two weeks. And we could their job, we can write doctor's notes, whatever, two weeks, the job will survive. And they can go back to work within two weeks, go back to their lives, go back to caring for their family members, for their elder parents, for their children, for their siblings, for whatever it is that they have going on so that they can get back on their feet. So that was a lot of the personal mission, my own personal mission. Funny enough, 
Cedar Sinaide recently released an article about access to basically minimally invasive options for women suffering from fibroids. And they found that brown and black women had significantly less access to these options, to these minimally invasive modalities. So they not only proved my point, but they supported it. And they said, we really need to expand access for these women. So I have made it my own personal mission in the city of Atlanta to do this. So here I am very surgically busy and very ready to do it. (laughs) But that's it. That's why I'm angst. And that's why I do what I do. And I think it's important that women have the best option available to them, which I think is very soon going to become standard of care. Wow. That's so amazing to hear. It sounds like access to care is really something that drives you as a physician. You mentioned this earlier as well, the um, idea of diversity and the patients that you see, the conditions that you treat. Uh, Along those same lines, I'm wondering how your own background influences your work. So I'm Puerto Rican. I moved to the States when I was 10. And within my own, you know, experiences, personal experiences, I came with my two sisters. I have a younger sister who's special needs. She's the light of my life. She's like my daughter. Because she's special needs, she's been in and out of doctor's offices. That really inspired a lot of my becoming a physician in general, just trying to think about the interactions and the amazing doctors that she had. And I said, I want to do that for someone else. So that was initially how I became interested in medicine. But a lot of it was also seeing kind of just by our last name, what services were offered to us or maybe not. So there's been definitely times, and I've seen it multiple aspects from my mother to my sisters, where potentially had something been different, maybe we would have had a different outcome. Mm -hmm. So it's something that we look at and not to say too much on the topic, but it's there and it's palpable. So I think one of the things that drives me is to provide access to care to women in Atlanta that potentially may not have that opportunity. Brown, Black women, Asian women, whoever traditionally hasn't had it. And I want to be the doctor that says, no, no, come in. I'll help you out. Yeah. Yeah. And all the workshops that we do about unconscious bias, it's really admirable that you're taking a step to fight that consciously. Oh my gosh. And so I'll tell you my own biases now. So a lot of times I'm very open-minded to kind of historically marginalized communities. So patients that have had a lot of privilege, you know what I find? I find that I'm a little bit hesitant to take care of them because I'm like, but you've had access. Like, why do you need me? So check out bias, right? On the other end of the spectrum. So for me, I have to take a step back sometimes. We're like, hold on, wait, wait, wait. I still can provide this service to any patient that walks through my door, no matter what. So you have to pull that aside because yes, I have my own personal goals and personal missions. But really every patient needs access and every patient needs care. And if they come to my door requesting me and requesting my services and my abilities, really the right thing to do is the right thing to do. So bias, right? Got to check that too. Mm -hmm. And just more about, you know, reaching out uh, in the community, just even within the medical community, I'm sure coming back to academia from private practice has added a bunch of mentorship roles in your life. Talk about kind of how that's been going for you. So I'll tell you, I was in private practice and in private practice, a lot of times you were the end all be all. And I was just fresh out of fellowship and knowing my limitations because you, you have to know your boundaries as a doctor, right? You have to know I can do this, or I know I've done this. I know my anatomy. I know my planes, 
but I know this case is going to be a doozy. So even in private practice, I quickly became friends with urologists and general surgery because many times I use them within my own cases. And frequently I would, if I had a difficult case, I would ensure that I had general surgery available to me or urology, and I formed good relationships with them. What I'll tell you the difference is being in academics now is in academics, you work with people that have had infinitely more experience in difficult surgery. So it makes it even not easier, but it makes it even better, I guess, to ask for help. <laughs> you say, I have this patient, I'm going to need your help with entry, or I'm going to need your help with taking down these adhesions of endometriosis on the colon or these lesions that are uh, on the ureter. I may need a reimplant. If there's endometriosis in our bladder, we may need to do a partial cystectomy. And the answer isn't like, whoa, what? The answer is, sure, I'll help you. And that's like kind of the big difference, which really allows me, aligns with my mission of let's just help these patients. I think going back to your com comment about mentorship. Yeah, I've had definitely wonderful mentors. Susan Mata said, actually, I'm going to give her a shout out. She's a GYN oncologist and she is a powerhouse. But anytime I'm in the OR, she's made it very, 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 very apparent. If you need my help, call me. I was like nine months pregnant when I started at Emory last year. And I really wanted to work all the way up until I gave birth, you know, access for patients. I just started a new job. So I was like 39 weeks and a day pregnant. I was in the OR operating. I know, I know in hindsight, right? I do not recommend, but anyways, so I was there and I started having contractions and I was like, oh boy, oh boy, oh boy, I got to sit down. So I called Susan Madison and I was like, I need you to come help me with this case. <laughs> and she totally had my back. And she's like, if your water breaks, I'm not delivering your baby. She hasn't delivered a baby in years, but she's like, I'm not doing it. <laughs> I made it. I lasted a few days and then I went into labor. <laughs> well, I'm glad you lasted. You and me both. Can you imagine? <laughs> that would have been chaos. <laughs> kind of in that vein, when we first started talking, you mentioned, you know, being a young surgeon, being a young mom and being a young woman in surgery. Yeah. Do you think you could talk a little bit about how you have been functioning mm -hmm. within that space? Yeah, it's really, it's tough. It's not easy. I think one of the best things that you can wear is confidence, not arrogance, but confidence. I think one of the ways that I, I work around that and like, look at me, you guys can see my face. I look very young. So people look at me and they're like, are you the med student? And I'm like, thank you for that beautiful compliment, but I am not. So I think it's hard right? You have patients that have been used to seeing a certain kind of physician or an older physician or a male physician or whatever kind of different physician they expect. And then they come see me, this tiny Puerto Rican person coming in. And initially I've gotten it a lot where patients look at me a little bit perplexed. And then I say, what brings you in to see me? We start the conversation. And then what specifically is it that you're looking for? That's a huge question. I ask patients, not so much my interpretation of what's going on with them and what I recommend, but what is it that you want out of this consultation? And what do you want out of your procedure? What are you hoping for? And that little piece tends to be what usually hooks them in and says, yeah, she's listening to me and she really wants what is best for me. And I try to tailor my surgical approach to each patient based on where they are and meeting them there. So that's helped a lot. Yeah. I haven't run into too much of like, you're too young to be doing this kind of thing which is really nice. I think in private practice, there was a little bit more of that. But once I operated with certain specialties and they saw that I am trained, they kind of backed up a little bit and said like, okay, okay, let's work together and do this together. Um, and I think that's all it is. You just have to come in and try to hold that confidence, fake it till you make it. Even if you don't feel it, just go in, smile and, and be pleasant and be courteous. Take care of the patient first and foremost. 
How do you feel like your uh, support system throughout the department was being a a new mom and operating at the same time? (laughs) This was a fun one. There are a lot of people that checked in on me. There's a lot of new moms out there. It's kind of crazy. You become a mom and there's like a whole network you don't even know exists. Someone brought me a goodie bag with like breast pump parts and like snacks. And it was like the kindest gesture. It was those little things that really make it worthwhile. And I remember pumping, you're trying to, you know, give milk to your baby. And as a surgeon, sometimes you feel like that's really the only thing you can do because you're working such long hours. And there were days I, there's still days I don't see my baby and it's hard, right? That's really hard. But if you have the ability to, to produce milk and be able to give that great, if you don't fine, feed your baby, like it's totally whatever you want to do, just specifically speaking to my experience. Um, but I wanted to provide milk, even if it was a bottle a day, right? And I remember I did something like six, nine, 12. And what I was going through was the three hour pumping schedule that you have to do. And one of the other providers, I must've said it like under my breath. And she turned, she's like, oh, are you figuring out your pumping schedule? <laughs> and I was like, yes, I am. In fact. So little things like that, you know, it makes you feel you're not totally isolated doing this seemingly impossible thing. I'm no longer pumping with my nine month old. I I have since given that up because it was too hard and I was too tired, but (laughs) I did what I could, right? And you know what? That is best. And that baby loves his formula. Yeah. And I know that these are um, deeply personal questions that we're asking. So definitely to the extent that you're willing to share. It's important. You know, can I tell you that I wish as a medical student, like I was Puerto Rican, I was at Temple. It was diverse as far as medical schools go, right? There was SNMA, my colleagues, some of them are Black, some of them identified Hispanic, um, Asian, Indian. But what I found was there wasn't a lot of diversity within endings, I guess I would say, or a lot of like, how am I supposed to act, right? So everybody has their own personality and their own way of being. And you don't even feel, you don't even know if it's safe to act the way that you should act. And I think, I remember feeling as a medical student that I didn't want to be bright and cheery. And I would get feedback a lot that would say, you know, you're too cheery or you're too bubbly, or you need to pull back and you need to be more serious and you need to be, and it was just different personalities. And I say anyone that's getting feedback, I think it's super important to just be true to who you are. And the way you connect with patients is the way that you connect with patients and everybody's different, you know, and and I think it's important to just stay true to your personality. If you want to wear bright pink shoes to work every day for it do it. And you're going to be known as the doctor with the bright pink shoes. And that's fabulous. And that's great. And that helps, right? Because you're going to find a patient with the bright pink shoes and and he or she is going to be like, that's my doctor because they wear bright pink shoes. So I think it's, it's super key to just stay true to yourself. And I wish I had had someone that gave me that mentorship opportunity or had told me, don't listen to anyone else. Just bring whatever light you want into whatever room you walk into. And I encourage that. So I think is important. This is like off off topic, right? This is extra. <laughs> no, it's nice. It's nice to hear, especially because surgery can be very traditional at times. So it's okay. it's nice to have that piece of advice to stay true Absolutely. to yourself. Girl, I wear heels to work every single day. I, was I love pregnant. that. I was pregnant and I was wearing heels all the way up until the nurses finally were like, your ankles are huge. You need to stop. <laughs> I was squeezing my feet into my heels because by God, I was going to be a surgeon and I was going to be pregnant and I was going to wear heels. And I will tell you that 
it's not something that everybody can do, but I was, by God, I was going to do it. So I think it's important to just abide. If you want to wear a skirt, if you want to wear your dress, whether male, female, non-binary, whatever you want to be, it doesn't matter. Do whatever you want to do. Do whatever makes you you because your patients will find you and you're going to be so much better for them. That's it. That's the good stuff. I think it can be so hard too, as, as women in medicine and still feeling the divide that exists in certain spaces, it can be hard advice to put into practice. And I'm wondering if you have any other suggestions for women who are trying to take their space, especially in the area of surgery, which can feel even more difficult. Yeah. Especially around the OR table. It's really hard when the attending is talking to the resident, when the attending is talking to the fellow, when the attending is addressing everyone except the medical student, except maybe the intern, or they're having conversations about the basketball game. And you're like, nah, I don't know anything about this. Like, it's really hard to be able to, to bond. So now as an attending, when I do combine cases, the same thing happens. The same thing happens to me. I allow the conversations to come in and out. And then, you know, sometimes I'll bring up a conversation about something else what did you do this weekend? Or with the scrub tech, make people know that you're there, right? You don't necessarily have to spark a conversation, but just brief, short, make people there. If a conversation comes up that you feel maybe you can contribute, but you're a little bit hesitant, read the room, right? The beautiful thing is that as doctors, as medical students, we're experts in people. So we learn through our doctoring courses, how to read humans. We read humans. That's what we do all day. So being a medical student, is really hard. You're a chameleon that's constantly reading a room, constantly reading your attendings and your residents. And if there's a piece of conversation that you can like quickly jump into, go for it. Or a smile, sometimes looking someone in the eyes, right? You can look at someone in the eyes. You're an adult, you pay taxes, right? You can look at someone in the eye. That's how I feel it, right? You can make decisions. You pay your taxes. Like, heck, that's a lot. Not sure <laughs> you should make that our episode. To <laughs> you pay your taxes. Jump in. <laughs> Uh, yeah for sure my ors my ors are like music galore it's always like play a song play some music let's keep it as lighthearted. i never yell in my or i will never yell i want to hear what your what your or environment is like your your favorite music anything and everything there's like or millennial surgeons right there's like oh there's like this whole new playlist there was one that someone recently brought up oh for the gyne surgeon it was or music for the gyne surgeon i was like what we listen to beyonce we listen to 90s divas we listen to 80s. We listen to anything. Honestly, anything and everything that we can get our hands on, we do. As I say in the OR, I will combust without music in there. So it's important. Keep everyone zen. And snacks. Everyone needs snacks. If someone's hungry, just please. We need a break. Snacks. I think that should be a rule. Snack breaks in the OR. <laughs> I know. It's not just anesthesia. I, I mean, <laughs> I'll tell you that's one of the beauties of robotic surgery too, is that because you're scrubbed out for part of the case, you kind of, I mean, I don't take snack breaks, please don't spread that rumor, but you know, you're scrubbed out and, and you get a minute, right? You can, you scrub back in, it, it allows you to reset, which I think is really fun too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And just a little bit more about your OR days. It's unfortunate. I only got to work with you in clinic, but I remember you telling me that you stack your OR days so heavy because you have so many patients that are waiting so many weeks and weeks for you. Mm-hmm. Um, So just kind of a question about how you balance being a new mom, being a wife, being a busy, you know, essential surgeon and just what your life is like outside of the hospital in general. Absolutely. I try to value efficiency. So you'll find to get through my busy clinic days, I think I have probably the most off phrases of anyone I've ever met. 
So everything is a dot phrase, everything down to my signature. So anything that I can do that is repetitive, if I know that I'm, if I do it like two or three times, you're getting a dot phrase for it because I know I'm going to use it again. So as much as I can, dot phrases, dot phrases, dot phrases. There's a lot of avenues that you have to look at, right? There's epic messages, there's your email, there's your text messages, your work email. So I tend to try to do like 24 hour buckets, like a circle of one circle of another circle of another circle of another. So if I check my messages in the morning, I may not check them again that same day. I may check them the next day. Right. But I know I haven't checked for example, I haven't checked my email thoroughly today. So I know tonight at some point I have to check my email. So I'll do that tonight. But that's kind of the one that's been the most neglected in the last 24 hours. But usually within 24 hours, I'm able to navigate and able to check all my different avenues. So it's just a lot of time management and coordinating, ensuring that I don't lose time with something specific. I learned this from actually Denise Jameson, who was our former chair. She was very good when I was a chief resident. Anytime we had meetings with her, she would say, okay, we have 30 minutes starts now. And then she had a timer and at 30 minutes, her phone will go off and be like, thank you so much for your meeting. We're going to go. And if you weren't finished, you weren't finished, but she was moving on to the next thing. And I think that's an important thing to do. In med school, you learn a lot of those skills too with studying that you shouldn't cram, right? You have to slowly study over time. So I apply a lot of those um, same principles. So I had to review residency applications, for example. I didn't leave it all to the last minute. I did two or three in a day and then two or three and then two or three and then I was done. So it's something to just to-do list, keep it organized, making sure that I'm home by a decent hour so I can see my baby. So usually I want it to be before seven because my baby goes to bed at like 7.30. So usually before seven. Um, most days I get home at like five, you know, five, between five and six, if I'm in the OR sometimes later, but it's the life that we lead, you know, it's a profession. Yeah, it's definitely a balancing act. And I feel like even as a medical student, I'm learning that it's certainly easy to forget that there should be a bucket for other things outside of the hospital and learning and all of that. I'm wondering if you're able to still include that bucket of other hobbies and interests And if you are, if you could speak to some of the um, skills you're using to make sure you're still keeping that in there. So I love dancing, right? So I was in college, uh, I had a a degree in dance and I did a lot of teaching of of dance in schools in Philadelphia when I was in undergrad at Drexel. I did, I I taught dance classes in high schools and in junior high because they didn't have PE programs. Um, I also did performances with different artists in the Philadelphia area, which is really beautiful and nice. I was part of the Drexel Dance Ensemble, right? So I had the opportunity to do that. Uh, I love dancing, salsa, merengue, you know, it's part of my culture too. So now with my baby, I don't get to go out dancing as much. Usually dance classes, you're supposed to go on a weekly basis, but my schedule is just a scotch to an unpredictable for that. But I dance with my baby in the living room and he's very musically inclined, which I love. So we do plenty of salsa and merengue and like listening to all types of Spanish music in my house. I also enjoy arranging flowers, which has become like a very interesting hobby where I can cut and arrange flowers and it, it tends to go towards my artistic side, but it's not terribly time consuming. So I can do that. I recently started audiobooks. I know I'm crazy late to the game, but that's like like reading books, right? So I've, I'm now on my fourth book this year and I do it in between. Sometimes it's like, you know, at night, if I'm unwinding, brushing my teeth, I'll put the audiobook on. If I'm washing baby bottles, I'll put the audiobook on. So if I have a drive or I'm stuck in traffic between, you know, coming from work, my commute, my 20 minute commute, I'll listen to the audiobook. So finding little moments of time 
that make you feel a little bit more fulfilled for yourself is really important. And it's something that definitely can be incorporated. It's a little thing, but it can go a long way, especially if you do it daily. I think that's a great segue into our little section of fun questions. Oh gosh, I'm ready. (laughs) (laughs) So first, uh, just something about yourself that you think might surprise us and all of our listeners. Something about myself. These questions were not provided to me ahead of time. So this is (laughs) spontaneous. Um, Something about myself that might surprise the listeners. I feel like there's got to be a a, a comment here. There's something here. Hold on, hold on. Let me think for two minutes. Let me think one moment. Um, Yeah, I'll tell you this. When I was in high school, actually, I really enjoyed 3D art. And I did a lot of underwater basket weaving. So <laughs> I was underwater weaving. It was underwater basket weaving as, as a technique. So I wasn't like scuba diving oh. in baskets. <laughs> I was, it's like you work with different types of reed, but the reed is really firm, right? So you have to moisten it. So I would fill my bathtub when I was in high school with water. And I would literally do these huge baskets that were made of reed. And I like won a lot of awards for it for my 3D, my water, underwater basket weaving. And I made tapestries. I was very 3D inclined. So it doesn't surprise surgeries. Of course, very, very good with my hands. So, yeah. <laughs> that is the funniest thing I've ever heard. <laughs> yeah. Underwater basket weaving. There you go. <laughs> what a skill to have in your back pocket. That's so I know, cool. right? I can still do it. It takes like, you know, like the weaving. I know it's like a thing. Yeah. <laughs> So it's possible you've already answered this question, um, but I'm wondering if you have a specific accomplishment that you're most proud of, either work-related or not related, um, potentially basket weaving, which is super cool. Potentially basket weaving. Um, Gosh, you know, I think a lot of the accomplishment is, I don't know that I have, I don't know that I have like my life's work yet. I don't know. Maybe when I look back on it, I'll think differently. One of the things I really pride myself in is commitment to mentorship. So I have like mentees. I have a mentee from when I was a med student that she was a high school student. We still keep in touch. I have a mentee down in Puerto Rico that I keep in touch. She's in college right now. She wants to go to med school. I have a few others um, in LMSA. I just signed up to be LMSA and actually one with the impact also. So I have mentees through residency, um, fellowship programs. So I really pride myself in that. And I think I I wish I had had more mentorship when I was going through, since I was pretty much like the first doctor in my family to come through US training and do all of this. So it was really difficult. And I wish I had had someone that just kind of told me it was okay, or I was on the right path, or I wasn't on the right path. Um, so yeah, I think that that's the thing I'm most proud of is, is that time commitment to mentorship. Yeah, that sounds really amazing that you've been able to keep in contact with all of these people longitudinally through like the last 10 something years. Years, yes, 10 years. I know, I know. And she's fabulous. She's great. She's doing great. Everybody's doing great. (laughs) I'm sure. I'm sure they all have very bright futures ahead of them, especially with you in their corner. (laughs) I mostly just cheer them on. I'm mostly like, I love this for us. I love that plan. Yep. No, (laughs) I agree. Let it go. Let's let it go. Almost like coaching, right? Like impromptu coaching, right? It's like Mm -hmm. everybody needs that, right? I remember one of the things that we did in the operating room, actually, I had a I was with my fellow. I was I was teaching her and she's excellent. I mean, Alyssa's wonderful. And she was in the operating room. We were over at Emory Decatur 
and we were working on one of her skills on the robot and, you know, she finally got it. And instinctively I started clapping for her, right? I was like, yes, you got it. You got it right. I started clapping. And the anesthetist over the, right, he peeked over the curtain and he's like, I wish someone clapped for me every time I did something right. (laughs) And then it brought back that moment, brought back a memory of when I was in college and we were getting ready for a performance for dance actually. And it was one of like our, you know, I don't know, winter performance or something like that. But something was going on that the morale, we were just really tired and finals. And, you know, it's really hard to kind of get in the game when you're feeling all that. And then um, Miriam Jaguer, who was our ensemble leader, pretty much our choreographer, she told all of us to have a seat in the audience. And then basically what she did was one by one, she made us get up on the stage and walk across the stage and an entire group of like 60 women were clapping for you. And let me tell you, if you ever have the opportunity to have 60 people just like clapping for you, it is one of the best feelings in the world. And you just, it it fills you with emotion. So it's something that I thought about and I said, you know what? I'm going to clap more often in the OR. Anytime anyone does something good, I'm going to clap, right? And it just makes you feel so much like, yes, I did it. After all like the grit and grime that I do every day, right? I got to clap, right? So I think that's going to be my new thing. <laughs> we'll see. We'll see where it goes. The clap. <laughs> well, that was so great. And now I'm wishing that I had more time in your OR. In the R, we can stop clapping. <laughs> I know. I think we all need like this positive feedback. <laughs> yeah. yeah, positive feedback. And then when it, when it's not going well, I'm like, okay. Maybe let okay. Can I show you one time? Okay, let me show you. <laughs> okay, well, you now you do it. Don't try. And then I go, all right, you know what? There's always tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> I'll clap tomorrow. <laughs> we'll clap tomorrow. There's always tomorrow. It's okay. But let's stay optimistic. <laughs> right? We go, it's okay. It's not that serious. It's all right. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Ramirez, for joining us today. And for another episode of Wiser, we loved hearing so much about your life and your career, and we're excited for all of our listeners to get to know you as well. Yeah, and thank you so much for having me. And I, I look forward to working with any future and past medical students, and you'll, you'll be surprised. My last little clip was, you never know who you're going to meet, so make sure that you're really nice to everybody, even as attendings. Many of the general surgery chief residents that were that are five years were my medical students when I was a resident here. And they've been tapping me on the shoulder being like, and I'm like, (laughs) so it's been really a beautiful thing to see them and extremely unexpected, but it's been a beautiful joy this past year. Yeah. Thanks guys. I appreciate it. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of Wiser. If you like this episode, please rate and leave us a review as it helps others find the show. You can also share with friends and family. Follow us along on Instagram and Twitter at Wiser Podcast for updates. See you in the next episode.